Welcome to the 16th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Markus Buschbeck. And I'm happy to talk to you now during the Embo Embel Symposium Metabolism Meets Epigenetics. Uh, thank you, Markus, for joining me today. Yeah, great pleasure. Uh, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You are German and did your PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry in Munich. After your PhD, um, you did your postdoc at the newly funded CRG in Barcelona and became then a PI at the IMPPC in, also in Barcelona in 2009. And then you moved to the Jose Carreras Center in 2015 to start your lab titled Chromatin Metabolism and Cell Fate. And there you are still today. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off uh, our little post podcast and to break the ice is how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then why did you want to pursue a career in science? <laughs> well, um, the truth actually is that in high school I um, I could choose one of the topics which I would not need to pursue and I got rid of biology. Oh, how neat. <laughs> and then I had my final degree and I was sitting at home and my mother pointed out it's time that I would do something. Okay. And so I decided to um, to sign up at the university and I signed up for chemistry. Okay. Because I was always good at chemistry and I did not know what else to do. And chemistry sounded like a reasonable start. And I kind of liked it. But I realized that what the biochemists are doing next door might be a lot more interesting. And so I slowly slided over to biochemistry. And then I had to start to learn biology as well. <laughs> um, you were born in Germany, but now you're working in, in Barcelona. Um, how did you find your way to, to Spain? I mean, you, you immediately after your PhD, you went to, to Spain. Yeah, I did my PhD in Munich and I worked on kinases and phosphorylation. We did a lot of phosphorylation analysis with radioactive substances, of course. And at the end of this PhD, I, I felt I would like to do something else. And this was exactly the time when Thomas Jenowan identified SUA39 as a histone methylase and And it became clear that these methylations, modifications of histone actually mean something that actually yeah, yeah. functionally regulating. And I thought oh, that could be a good change. Instead of phosphorylation, working on something else, instead of, of the cytosol and signaling cascades moving to the nucleus. And then a real um, career deciding moment was um, one of the first conferences organized by Peter Becker in Munich, which was of his, of his German. Um, coordinated research center a conference and he had invited all these chromatin people that i did not know and for the first time in my life i heard about his tone variants modifications stress response and chromatin puffing and and that day i decided i want to work on chromatin and then of course what i did i, I made a list and tried to figure out what are the good labs in chromatin and I say I have interviewed with the usual suspects. Okay. Don't want to say any names, but <laughs> one of quite a few of the really big names in chromatin biology I interviewed with and I liked them and I was really doubting where to go. And then by coincidence, really a coincidence again, I ran into an old friend and he told me about a new institute in Barcelona. I told him, Barcelona? <laughs> no. That's a no-go. That's not on the map. And he said, yeah, well looks kind of promising. So yeah, but I want to do chromatin research. And he said, you know, it's a chromatin research institute. It's called the Center for Genomic Regulation. And so I sent them a, a last application with, with real no 
major intentions. I did the interview there as well. And there was such a pioneering spirit. So the director himself, Miguel Beato, introduced me at the door. He presented me to all his PIs. And he said, you know, Marcus, this is not much we have here, but what we want to do during the next 10 years is to put this institute on the map. We want to be among the leading institutes. And we would like to be you to be one of the first postdocs. And coming from the Max Planck Institute, which is the most established institute in Germany, this felt like a complete different spirit and was very attractive to me. Risky, but very attractive. And in the end, uh, you stayed there, right? <laughs> so <laughs> Stayed there for quite a while. Yeah. So currently you are affiliate affiliated to the Jose Carreras Leukemia Center. Um, and in Ringsburg, we also have kind of a division or as, as we had uh, now talked about, um, like a funded project, this, which is also called Jose Carreras Centrum. This is why I know this a little bit. At, at least it rings a bell. And it seems that uh, Mr. Carreras uh, did a lot for the science. Um, what is the mission of your center? And are you in contact uh, with all the other centers or projects around Europe? Yeah, I think here we need to explain who was Jose Carreras. I mean, our parents might know very well. He was <laughs> one of the most famous opera singers together with Paparotti and Domingo. And what happened to him is actually he, he got an acute leukemia. And he was Spanish. And when he consulted his doctor in Spain, he said, yeah, well, the only thing that can save your life is a transplant. But the issue had we, we had in Spain is there was no database for transplant donors. So he moved to Seattle. He okay. got transplanted by the very same doctor who received the Nobel Prize for transplantation. And because they had a database, they found a donor and he got the transplant and the transplant did not work. Because oh, how okay. does transplantation work? I'm not sure if you're aware of this. What they actually do, they use a chemotherapy to kill your own bone marrow. Yep. That means from that moment on, the blood in your veins is the last blood you're going to have if you don't get new bone marrow. Then you get a transplant. The transplant, if everything goes well, settles in and starts to produce new blood for you. And this doesn't happen. So he knew that the blood in his veins would probably last for 100 days and this okay. would be the end of his life. That's crazy. Yes, this is very scary. Yeah. But then his doctor was involved in a clinical trial testing growth factors who might that might kick in the growth of, of blood and the differentiation of blood. And he was one of the first in humans to actually participate in the trial. And this kick-started the blood production and saved his life. So from the from his blood or from the donor's blood? The donor's blood. He yeah. did not have own blood anymore. That oh, was the yeah. donor transplant, which now worked. Yeah. And now this treatment is a standard. This is GMCSF, which now is given to all transplanted patients. Funny enough, I will donate stem cells in two weeks' time. So I was also selected for such a process. So this is something I can relate to. But this is also really scary if you are a donor. And you know it's only going to work uh, work out for, for the one who receives your stem cells if everything goes well, right? Yeah, yeah but if it goes well, then you save a life and then yeah, you can exactly, be very yeah. proud of yeah. having, having done your part in that. Yeah. And then the interesting, now to coming back to yeah. all these Carrera centers we have today, is um, when he moved back to Barcelona, he was still in hospital and he did the follow-up, and but he was still very famous, so he received thousands of postcards every day. And his brother needed to carry them in for him. <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, I'm getting better. I survived. And I survived for two reasons. Because we found a donor. And before, because there was research trying to find better ways of making this happen. So what can I do? And then I told him, listen, um, we had problems because there was no donor registry in Spain. He said, yeah, well, can I make one? 
So he spoke to the minister. Yeah. And the minister of health back then said, well, there's no funding in Spain to do that. And he said, okay, I, I do a foundation. Okay. I give so many concerts for free until we have enough money to make this starting. And that was the beginning of the Rosé Carreras Foundation. And in the end, he has founded four different foundations. The two most prominent ones are the one in Germany and Spain. And they have started to, to get more money, to raise a lot of money and to put it back into research. And so in Germany, they have funded a lot of facilities at, at different hospitals. They have funded research grants. They usually raise seven to eight million every year. And this includes the Regensburg project. And in Spain, and this is the other side, um, they also have done this over many years. And at some point, they came to the conclusion they would like to take the next step. And the next step would actually be to help the government to build, like the CRG, a new institute which is fully dedicated to leukemia research. And, and this is where I am right now. This is pretty impressive. How, how big is that institute? So we are now 24 groups. This is pretty impressive also. <laughs> I mean, we just basically started mm -hmm. because until, until basically in the middle of this year, we did not have a director. He was okay. just recruited. This is Dr. Manel Estellier, also a big epigeneticist. And with him, a lot of people have entered. We have reaffiliated um, clinicians. We have basic researchers. So basically, we try to, to cover from the very basic research up to the clinical research, everything related to blood diseases. Yeah, that, that's great. Can you tell me more about uh, the new, new director? So this was the first director, right? I thought it was just a change, but it was like the newly instated first director of the institute. Yeah, we need to look back what happened in Spanish research over the last 10 years. And this was a severe financial crisis, which still has not been passed. We are still in very low budget conditions. And so the institute was founded, but there was no major investment from the government side made. The foundation provided the building and the infrastructure, but there was no real commitment from the government until this year. Okay. And now basically I have the feeling the institute is just starting to take off. So we have we can expect a lot of great work in the coming years or what is what do you expect? I expect a lot of interesting interactions because we finally got the people working on very different aspects in the same house. So we have people like me who are really biochemists with a chemical background yeah. and you have next door clinicians who actually can tell you what is the major issue we have because you need to know what the problem is and you need to understand how how actually clinical work works so what happens to a patient what is really realistic and and so together i think we can identify the most urgent cases to work on and then i think we can be very creative in getting things done i mean that there must be like a, a huge like community there i mean you, you you work next door to to all those people i mean there must be a, a huge synergistic effect then in the end yeah exactly i mean it, many of these groups have just been recruited okay. we are all new to the house and but it starts to happening and also we have just had a huge inauguration conference where we basically pulled in a lot of people from around the globe working on leukemia mm -hmm. and we want to be a hub not only us but we actually want to involve institutes all around the globe to work with us that sounds very promising i mean that's that's what science is about right i mean it's not about you doing your own stuff i mean it's also about that but it's also i'm um, involving everybody exchanging ideas and, and, and doing all this research together um, now let's focus a little bit more on your work um, everybody i mean not everybody but 
a lot of people are talking about histone uh, post-translational modifications nowadays, but you are focus focusing on histone variants, uh, which is a different kind of things. Uh, can you briefly explain uh, what is the difference and what is the different function of those variants? Yeah, basically, when I when I started my postdoc, everyone was excited that we have found methylation events on histone tails, and it became very clear that they're actually regulatory, that they're important. Um, What was a little bit less studied is actually that in addition to, to modifying a histone, you can also replace this by a histone variant. And histone variant is basically still a histone, but it might differ in 30-40% of, of the amino acid sequence. Now, in addition, some histone variants have extra domains. And so I chose to study those histone variants which are most different to the other histones. Oh, where are they different? Are they different in the, in the core? I mean... Probably not because you cannot access it from the outside, but are they different in the tail? So what is the difference here? Yeah, the, the mean the real difference in most H2A variants um, oh, is the C-terminus. Yeah. And I'm working on the subgroup of H2A variants called the macro H2A variants. And they're different because the C-terminus is not a small tail. It's actually a long extension. So like the N-terminus. No, no, it's no. longer. It's yeah, much but, but, longer. But, but it sticks out like the N-terminus. It sticks out, but on the opposite side, yeah. next to the DNA. Okay. which we also call, you know, if everyone talks about the H3N-terminus, right next to it is the H3C-terminus sticking out. Okay. So these are the two tails, which are very close to the diet axis and where the DNA goes in and out. On the nucleosome, okay. we'd say that if, if there's a hot side of the nucleosome where we do all the regulation, it's on that side. And now some histones, like some H3 variants, have a very short tail, but the macro H3s have a very long tail, a tail which first is unstructured, which is a linker, and then it adds a 30 kilodalton globular domain on top. And this is a huge modification of a, of a nucleosome. And so that's why I decided, if everyone gets excited about a methylation, <laughs> I will be get exciting about um, something which is just a huge modification and we'd want to know what does it do. And which is completely different, completely new, maybe at that time, right? Or Yeah, I mean, it was already described that this protein existed. Actually, Andreas Laduna already had mm -hmm. demonstrated that this macro domain, this globular domain, is actually able to bind a metabolite, which made it even more exciting. Yeah. Um, but it was very little known about its function. So can you uh, just go back, because you mentioned it, about the 3D structure of the nucleosome, right? So you have the DNA coming in, then it wraps around one time, and it goes like back a second not a second time but it goes further and then it comes out of the nucleosome again so would you say so the dna comes in the dna comes out and then where do the where are the the tails of of the histones yeah the, the, that's exactly the sign exactly where the dna comes in and out this is oh, where yeah, the is h2a the same, the c terminus point? yeah because you have of course two histones yeah. and they stick out and the entry and the exit and this is where you have the h2a c terminus and the h3 n terminus And these are the two termini we know that are heavily modified yeah. and that are actually different in histone variants. So the focus of our work, as you described, is macro H2A. And in 2009, you had an NSMB publication and you investigated its function and development. So what is the function of macro H2A uh, as a regulator of maybe developmental genes or, or what did you find there? I mean, actually, how, how did you get along um, yeah. or what did we do back then? Um, We asked very simple questions. That's how we go about a macrohistory. day. And we asked, where is it? So what we did, we did one of the very first chip on chips back then. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's old ten school. Ten years ago, yeah. And and actually what we saw is that macrohistory was enriched on developmental genes. So 
if it's on developmental genes, we want that with the head. It has a function development. And so now actually we moved to the I moved, walked into the neighboring lab, which was um Lopez Shear, and they had zebrafish. And I asked mm, them, can yeah. we zebrafish is a good developmental model? Can we knock out macro, knock down macro H2A and see if something happens? And he said, Well, I'm not sure <laughs> this beast has this gene. I said, Yeah, let's let's give it a try. So we we found it. The mm-hmm. genome was just published. We did a knockdown, and actually what we observed is that um, when we do the knockdown, you get still a fish, but it's perturbed. Okay. And actually, this is very nice because you saw a fish which had a little slightly deformed body structure. When we zoomed into any organ, for example, the brain, we saw that the mid-hindbrain boundary was not closing at the right moment. So this basically, I think, is a very general conclusion for epigenetic regulation. Because what you have is not master regulators of developmental programs, but the machinery which support these master regulators and make development robust. So mm-hmm. if you perturb, you would not expect an animal without a heart, but you would maybe expect an animal where the heart formation is not as robust and as precise as in normal conditions. So how much of the H2A is then macro H2A? So in terms of percentage? Uh, or? That's, a, that's a very good question. And the answer is in most human cells of our body, it's probably 1%. Okay. So in, 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 in adult humans? Yeah. yeah. So if you take most of the cell lines, which are usually used in cell culture, or most of the tissues you can easily access to, mm. you end up with 1%. Okay. And how does it work? I mean, um, when is it maybe integrated or when does it get produced or... Is it like in, in the development, is it more prone to be expressed? Like is the portion then maybe 10% or how does it work? No, actually it's just the opposite. If you look at embryonic stem cells, yeah. these are cells almost without macro-H2A. Okay. And as they move down the differentiation scale, the more you differentiate, the more macro-H2A expression you get. Okay. And what we know today is actually that what macro-H2A does, it actually helps to organize the nuclear architecture to make heterochromatin actually be nicely compacted heterochromatin and to keep gene regulation the way it should be. So is it then put there by special proteins so that it maybe recognize those, this globular domain and then put it on special genes that need to be shut off during the development process? Or how do you envision that? The, the short answer is we don't really know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But this was actually the first question my lab has tried to address and many other labs have tried to address. And we, we followed um, Genevieve Almusny's approach of using high affinity purification methods of yet to be incorporated histones to see if we can find them. And we completely failed to find a good explanation of how macro H2 gets into chromatin. Mm-hmm. And many other people tried the same and failed as well. We are now actually at the point that the only thing we know is actually that it gets removed where you don't want it. Okay. We actually know that, that the moving of Pol2 and the FAC complex actually removes it from highly transcribed regions. And actually, if you zoom out and you have an RNA-seq profile and a macro-H2A chipsack profile, you actually see valleys and macro-H2A chipsack where you have RNA-seq coming up. Oh, so it's like an indirect uh, regulation. So you put it stochastically around the genome just uh, like... Like a so, like salt on <laughs> on the super. Yes, I, I'm I'm not sure that we don't we don't yeah. really know, but it's it's certainly a hypothesis we are testing. 
Okay. Uh, if we fast forward a little bit, like into 2017, <laughs> there you published a pa paper on how macro H2A maintains nuclear organization and heterochromatin architecture. This is very interesting uh, because we already had some people here in this podcast talking about heterochromatin, heterochromatin structure and so on, nuclear organization, phase separation. So how does macro H2A act in this field? Yeah, here actually this was, I would say, like the turning point for my lab is when we actually... Um, When we actually zoomed out, when we were looking at gene regulation effects of macro HA, we were always subtle. When we looked at other histone modifications, effects were subtle. But when we one day asked someone to to actually take a picture with electron microscopy of a of a nucleus mm -hmm. and of the same cell type in a nucleus without macro HA, mm -hmm. okay, then for the first time we actually saw a major difference because you see this normal nucleus. If you can picture this in your mind, you see this nice or organization of heterochromatin at the periphery you see a nicely structured nucleolus some heterochromatin on the nucleolus and some nu heterochromatin spots in, yeah, yeah, in, in, yeah. in the middle and if you do the double knockdown of all macro H2A proteins all these heterochromatin structures that are visible in electron microscopy are completely gone okay and this was like this aha moment they said okay even if we work on the smallest unit of chromatin the nucleosome what we actually can read out are the largest structures. Now, what I call heterochromatin and what other people hear chromatin has probably different levels, right? Because what you see in electron microscopy is the largest level. What does this actually mean? If we now zoom in more, you might be able to find aggregates which you can call liquid-liquid phase separation. And now we believe that this is where macro-HJ acts. But now we need to sort this out. Yeah, we had we had Gary Coppen talk about this. Um, so you are now moving into this, or did you already do you have already have some results on that? <laughs> no, I mean if you look at Gary's work, which is actually very nice, he made this statement that if you have um, unstructured regions of proteins, that they actually can favor this kind of separation. And this, of course, what HP1 has. This is what H1 has. And if you look at macro-HDA, it has this huge linker connecting mm -hmm. histone fold and macrodomain. This has the same chemical, physical properties. Have you done the experiments yet? No. What we have done is actually we have looked at cells again and we have done knockdowns and we have stained heterochromatin. And then actually what you can see is at this lower level of resolution or at this higher level of resolution, you see that there's still some heterochromatin, but it falls apart. It disaggregates mm -hmm. partially. And this is actually what a lot of people observe. Have you done like chips seek or whether those regions change when you manipulate the, the macro H2A? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we have done this. And actually this is... This was actually, again, an aha moment because we expected, if you see this drastic yeah. change in microscopy, we expected trusting things to happen. But what happens is virtually nothing. Okay. Because when we analyze the expression of repeats, which are in heterochromatin, they are very mildly upregulated. If you look at K9 trimethylation, which is defining mark mm -hmm. of heterochromatin, it's unaffected. If you look at nucleosome positioning, nucleosome density, unaffected. So what macrature really does is not linear heterochromatin, It's really only compacting in three dimensions, putting different fibers together. And it will be the major challenge for my lab to figure out how that works. Have you looked at like binding factors that, that bind to macro-HTA? I, I guess you'd have done that. Yes, <laughs> of course we have done this. And it was not really, really easy to understand because whenever you purify macro-HTA, what do you purify? You purify an entire nucleosome yeah. together with its DNA, with other histones, histones that are modified, and you pull down the entire 
Chromatin Compartment with a, with a mild enrichment for the repressed yeah. chromatin. So how do we go on from here? Is actually we want to be more specific because mass spec now is amazing. You can analyze hundreds and thousands of associated proteins, but now what we actually do, we do point mutants in regions that we know are important for macro-HDA function. And now we compare wild-type and mutant proteins in the mass spec. And here we hope that we'll pick out these two, three key interactors. Yeah, that, that would be nice. But this is still ongoing, right? This is ongoing, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Future music. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless interesting. Um, the title of your lab also mentions the term metabolism. Um, could you give us some insight into this, uh, how macro-HDA functions on this because now we are at a metabolism meeting and <laughs> yeah so so why um did we move into metabolism there was this initial observation that first of all i need to, to explain there's not only one macro ray there are two genes one alternative invent of alternative splicing giving three proteins which look mm -hmm. pretty much the same and all of these proteins have a macro domain and each macro domain has a binding pocket mm -hmm. and one of those this was shown by Andreas Ladona, is able to bind ADP ribose. Yeah. So what is ADP ribose? This is half of NAD+. So if you take an NAD plus molecule and you break it apart, then you have ADP ribose. And we actually wondered why the hell is there a metabolite binding pocket on chromatin? And now I sum up <laughs> seven years of work. Um, what we actually found out that what it, this protein does, it actually binds also ADP ribosylated proteins and the main ADP ribosylated protein in low stress conditions is PUB1, the enzyme using NAD plus to make ADP ribose itself because it auto-modifies and the moment it auto-modifies it's able to bind and this complex, the bound complex is inhibited. That means whenever you have cell types which have more of this histone variant than PUB, you have like an endogenous inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And this actually then impacts on on the function of PAB1. But most interesting, it actually reduces NAD plus consumption in the nucleus. Mm -hmm. And now actually you have a, a modulator of NAD plus consumption in the nucleus, which feeds back in the entire NAD plus metabolism. And actually interestingly is when we manipulate this in the nucleus, we can actually read out functions that are NAD, NAD plus dependent far away. For example, the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So the energy pathway, right? So, so how much energy is maybe available or needs yes. to be made? And and why should this be important? Actually, what we saw is that it actually happens in muscle. Mm -hmm. Now we need to ask what are muscle cells. Muscle cells are terminally differentiated cells which have a major function that's motility. And motility is ADP dependent. How can we produce ADP? Only if we optimize mitochondrial metabolism. So what these cells do is they upregulate this inhibitor this puts like a layer, a higher threshold for PAB1 activation in the nucleus because we don't need much DNA repair in non-proliferating cells. Yeah. But, and this facilitates NAD plus usage in the mitochondria. And there's like, this was one of the very first examples that you have this interdependence of organelles which are far away and they communicate through metabolites. Now there are much more examples showing this, especially for NAD plus metabolism. I mean, and even though um, the mitochondria they didn't come from humans like originally so there is like this communication going on from different uh, organisms from different origins which is pretty impressive i guess yeah but i mean on the other hand you, you need to think what 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 does a cell use a cell uses the the molecules it has available yeah, of course sure. metabolism 
I think that's the take-home message from this meeting here, is always the most immediate reaction. Do you have energy available or do, don't yeah. do you? I mean, it's the same with a Nobel Prize, like hypoxia. Do you have oxygen available? Can you make, yeah. can you make energy or can you, can't you make uh, energy? So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, like, did you at one point of your career face the situation where you didn't know where to go? Or, I mean, I now ask this question twice already, but um, everybody says I have so many ideas. Uh, I, it, it really didn't happen to me. But, um, I mean, in, in one little area, did you maybe run against the wall and didn't know where to go? Yeah, I, I can give you a few examples, yeah. but um, let, let's go back in time at the beginning of my PhD. When I joined the lab at the Max Planck Institute, I actually chose my own topic. I asked my boss to give me many, many options. I chose one, and I chose one where there was quite a bit of preliminary data because I thought that would be a safe way to go. And it took me a year to, to reproduce that data, but I added more controls, and it became very clear that this is all just irrelevant and artificial. <laughs> and this was 15 months after the beginning of my PhD. And at that day, I spoke with my boss and he also said, Marcus, I really don't know how you're going to save your PhD career. And I didn't know neither. Mm -hmm. But um, I went home. I probably got drunk with a few friends. I returned on Monday, on Monday and... I decided to start something completely unrelated. <laughs> Which is probably the way to go then, right? Uh, ditch the, the, the dead end and, and, and look for something else. So in the last, let me see, like 30 minutes, um, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary? The big picture of your most important findings and maybe something that we might have missed during the interview. The big picture, I think I always try to go where there's a lot of unknown. I really like to, and I, I'm a biochemist, you can tell this. During my PhD, with the second half of my PhD, I, I started to work on a kinase which just has been identified. I thought, okay, kinase, unknown functions, new Safe. domain, <laughs> whatever you find, it will be new. When I was a postdoc, I probably did the same. I, I took a histone variant. I thought that's for sure somehow related to chromatin and epigenetics. And I really want to know what do these domains do? What does it mean for the cell? And and this also, I think, always has guided my, my curiosity. Never never stick to what you know and always try to, to find something completely novel. And also, this is difficult. My students are complaining sometimes <laughs> about this. But I think this really drives the curiosity in science. So thank you very much, Marcus, for your time. Uh, it was really nice talking to you. So Thank you very much. This was the 16th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>